this is, if you like, our, our World War II type experience. I mean, that, that's a, a very pale comparison. It's not just, but it's as close as we can get to something that requires the whole nation to band together and uh, do something actually good for one another. Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is about civil disobedience. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Father Paul Rouse and Bethany. Welcome. G'day, Pete. Thanks for having us on the show. Hello, Peter. Hello, Beth. Good, and hopefully we'll be obedient to today's schedule. We're going to be on time, hopefully, but... We want to talk about civil disobedience. In recent times in Sydney, we had a protest go through. There were some very good, otherwise quite moral people who were at the protest and some other ratbags, but there were some very good people at the protest who have put to me that there is a time and a place for a legitimate protest against what they believe is an unjust um, uh, restriction in terms of the, the lockdowns. And a lot of these people were complaining about legitimate things, I think. So the fact that their livelihood has been affected, the fact that their you know, mental health has been affected, there's quite a few reasons to complain about the lockdown. Maybe we could stop and indulge ourselves for a second and talk about <laughs> the hardship of lockdown and why, why we would be upset with this. Look, it's, um, I definitely haven't been the worst hit. Yeah, l- life is, is relatively the same as usual. Um, the one probably the most difficult thing, I think, because my family is not from New South Wales, has been, you know, the inability to, to get back and see them, uh, which I've been really desperate to do. So sucks, but I guess this is just the, the hand we've been dealt and we've got to deal with it as best we can until it blows over. So, mm. How's the lockdown affected you, Father? For us, the the lockdown has meant that the churches have had to stay closed, and so we don't have any people at the masses that we're saying, of course, privately at this time. Uh, it does mean a large number of people do reach out, especially over the phone, for a pastoral conversation, spiritual direction. Uh, there are lots of lonely people, so the effect is not so much on us directly as priests, but on those that we're serving. Um, we're very aware of how people can be suffering, but it's not very physical. It's mainly social, and a lot of our work is about keeping them company and reassuring them, bringing the sacraments to the sick and the like. I have to say that um, I mean, I've discovered myself as a little bit of an introvert as I've gotten a little bit older, and so I thought that being locked away would actually be kind of uh, a fun thing. You know, lots of time to spend with my books and quiet. Uh, things that I work to do with my family. But what's actually happened is that the meetings, the annoying part of other people, like meetings and all the administrative stuff, still keeps happening via the Zoom meetings. But the social things, the really good things about other human beings, the time we get to talk to them around the water cooler or the coffee machine, just aren't happening. And so you're getting all of the negative and none of the positive. It's it's quite a, um, a draining experience. Mm. Having said that, like Beth said, I'm not definitely not amongst the worst hurt. I still have a job. There's a lot of pressure in it, but I still have a job. You know, in Australia, we're very privileged that we can lock down. In India, they have no such luxury. They they're all crammed in, and there's there's no protection from these um uh, these conditions. But I am very much aware that dear friends of ours are in construction or in other industries that require you know, getting out and about, and they're, they're suffering directly because no money coming in is quite a serious thing 
uh, with paying mortgages or even just paying rent, there's a huge amount more pressure. And so people have legitimate concerns, I think. It's need, we need to say that very clearly up front. The question is, is this the best way to go about registering our angst and desire for a better way of doing things? If I could take a step back. Sure. Um, I was thinking the other day about you know, obedience to the law, and I realised that, again, perhaps I'm wrong, so jump in if, if this is a terrible assessment of the, <laughs> the history of law in, in 100 words or less, uh, but essentially prior to Christianity, you would have your allegiance to the law first and foremost, and to go against that would be going against the sort of natural law in a sense. There's almost no no distinction between, say, legal positivism and the natural law. And I think an example would be, say, Socrates choosing to commit suicide, prompted by the leading authorities at the time, rather than to, you know, to, to go against the law of the day, uh, even though his conscience would have dictated otherwise. Um, and I think maybe after, you know, the growth of Christianity, um, you see a lot more an appeal to the natural law and an appeal to the true divine law trumping any civil law, you know, if they're ever in conflict. The civil law doesn't have an end, doesn't have a telos in itself. It's, it's telos is the common good of the people that it governs. So what you're saying is that it's possible for the government to make a rule which isn't actually um, a good thing. So, for yes. example, some people say don't forget that it was the Nazis created laws to to isolate and exterminate Jews. Um, yes. It was all legal. Um, and in, there are other uh, people who were just following orders when they did horrible things, like the people who dropped the atomic bomb, for example, were just following orders and that was legal at the time. Yes. Now, it doesn't make them moral. And so you're, you're drawing a distinction there between uh, an unjust law and a law that's in line with the, the natural law, the good of everyone. Yes. <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a line. Uh, I think it's Shakespeare. It says something along the lines of, in the last analysis of man, um, his intelligence cannot plead the law at the bar of conscience. So God is not going to take <laughs> the law of the day. As so they, the uh, colloquial version of that is you can't stand in the final court before God and say, I was just following orders. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So what do you think, Father, about protests? You would have dealt with a few uh, informal protests in your time, I suspect. In <laughs> yes, L lodged a few in informal protests myself at different things. Yes. I, I think there's one aspect of all of this that we could add, which is the reason for civic disobedience. And usually in scriptures and in the Christian tradition, that's because the, what has been promulgated by a civil power conflicts with what the divine power has instituted. So right. where a civil law conflicts with the divine law, divine law being revealed by God through the scriptures and through the, the, the tradition. So there are a couple of criteria that need to be used if we're going to be civilly disobedient. One is that the the act of civil disobedience is itself non-violent. So right. we can't go out there and create mischief uh, especially against other persons or their private property. Those, th those things just are not acceptable because we're uh, resisting an evil with an evil. Yes. The other thing that uh, has also to be in place is that this nonviolent resistance has to uh, be in view of or seek to achieve a change in the unjust law. So I suppose a precondition to that is that it must actually be unjust so the question in my mind is whether the protesters the other day were 
non-violent and whether they were protesting to change a law which is unjust. I can't see the uh, those conditions being met. I think the second one was, though, Father. I, I think I think they actually genuinely wanted to change. Now, I'm not claiming to agree or disagree with them at this point. Mm. I think they definitely wanted to change the lockdown laws of that were that are currently in place, and I think that was what mostly they were protesting against. I have no doubt that's what they were protesting. I'm not sure whether their protest was justly founded. As in, has the government legislated something which is unjust and perpetrating an evil which everybody is obliged to accept in view of a higher law which has been foregone? Now, I, I don't think that's present, but others will disagree. In some of the argument, it doesn't matter if we disagree, we're allowed yeah. to disagree. But um, <laughs> yes. the, in fact, I hope we do on some things, at least it shows a, a brain that's still working. Um, the, but I, I think that there was confusion in some of the public debate about this between something is hurting me, I don't like this condition, yes. Yes. and something unjust has been done by that person. Yes. I think there's a like there's no doubt, I don't think in anyone's mind that lockdown sucks. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's I mean my own family's quite serious plans, my son's wedding, everything's being impacted by this. It's not a happy place. Mm. It's awful when, especially when people uh, who are dear to us are suffering financially and, more importantly, in mental health and physical health in some cases, when people um, can't be helped because of the situation. Um, But there's a different question about whether or not the government is the one causing this. Sure. I have my doubts, I have to say, about the effectiveness of lockdown as a long-term approach to this problem. I think if you're going to go with a a very short lockdown as we did at the start, that's the way it was sold to us at the start, a short, sharp (laughs) lockdown which which stops things, slows things down enough that we can then get on top of it via other means. But at the moment we seem to be still using the short, sharp, um, temporary measure 18 months later uh, with with not really a universal agreement on what we're going to do to get out of it. Mm. Now, having said that, I also don't think, I think, no, let me put it this way. I think I would have respected the protest more had they made an attempt to protest in a way that respected, insofar as they could, the law. So, for instance, wearing masks, distancing as much as they could, mm-hmm. um, and demonstrating that they weren't being irrespo- irresponsible with regards to transmission. And I think if we have a super spreader event come out of that particular walk, uh, it will have undermined their point severely. I think um, from my understanding, the protest was it was a grassroots movement. Mm. So It wasn't organised, no. It, well, I don't think it was organised. So without a, clear, without a clear message, so it didn't have a clear message and it didn't have, you know, a, a, any specific legislation or um, state of emergency power, what, what have you. That you it think was, people were just fed up, Beth? I think people were fed up, but I think there's also, I think there's also a legitimate fear among people with things like the vaccines, and not, you know, I'm certainly not an anti-vaxxer by any stretch of the imagination, but I think they definitely have a fair point where there's been so much misinformation and, you know, the medical associations backing and forwarding with, you know, what the vaccines will or will not do. Oh, it's safe for over 60-year-olds. No, it's not safe for pregnant women. Now pregnant women must be first in line for the vaccine. It's like, get you know, their messaging isn't clear. 
So our response isn't, well, you know, and as a group, response isn't clear. Just to add to that good point, if fear is what is driving the protest and the re- the resistance, generally speaking, which sounds like it might return not so in, in not so near future, um, then I wonder whether the protesters have turned to the wrong place to demonstrate. So instead of making everything the government's problem, which is the national Australian pastime, uh, whether we might consider. Uh, say, demonstrating to the church that more could be done to support people uh, making a, a, a peaceful approach to non, uh, non-government non organisations for charitable support, especially in the area of mental health, whether the government is doing enough in the area of, of compassion and understanding of a people's situation. Uh, we are trying to make a government which is uh, caring for people in a public health setting uh, look after an individual human heart. Now, that that's not the role mm-hmm. of government with great respect to the protesters. Can, oh, can I add to that? Um, I think protest as a, as a means of making oneself heard has the advantage of being a public spectacle which can't be shouted down or explained away by slick um, media outlets. But what, what the, the big disadvantage is, as Beth pointed out, because it isn't organised or well-constrained within a particular motive, there's not one goal, it's very susceptible to being hijacked by scallywags who are going to do bad things and behave in ways which then get represented as if you're at that march, then your behaviour is linked to that that particular action. Yes, and I think just in in recent history, so the 2019 rallies, the pro-life rallies, uh, in Martin Place and Hyde Park were excellent because the messaging was clear and direct. And everyone there was actually understood what they were doing there. They understood what they were doing there. They believed in life. They wanted to support both woman and child. That was, as, you know, that was as much as there was to the messaging. Hmm. Uh, the Saturday protest, I think, easily hijacked by people who have hang-ups with the government over other things, and it can yes. it's just become very you know, anti-authoritarian yeah. very, very quickly, which I think it, it did. I think you're right about the, some of the, the problems, Beth, with, with the messaging. We, we probably need to do a whole other show on the messaging around vaccines, but one of the problems that I'll identify is that we're being treated by children a little bit, that the messaging is super simplified and, as you say, when they change the message, it's not clear why and then you, you start to suspect what they're up to because even with the more recent messaging about um, delaying of intervals between the, the two shots of the vaccine, that's all about control of the spread. It's not got to do with protection of individuals, and yet they're still selling it as protection of individuals. Yes. So there's a whole lot of different aspects of the greater good going on here. And if maybe it's because we're not prepared when we're listening to the news to enter into a complex uh, you know, thought about all the different goods involved and all we care about is the one that's right in front of us. Maybe we've created a society where we don't have these complex discussions, but the fact that they're trying to oversimplify it from the public podium means that we either have to trust them implicitly on everything Mm -hmm. and that whatever their current idea of what's going to get us out is the one we all go with, or we're going to just give up on trying to credit them with some kind of coherence or, or competence. I think I might be missing the mark entirely, but I think at least the Australian mentality is that 
we've never really had to deal with a corrupt government in the way that other countries have. Um, you know, we've never had a civil war. We've never really fought for our rights and beliefs the way that other people around the world have. Um, and I think now more than ever, like the government is more under the spotlight than it has ever been. I think, you know, we have daily press conferences that a lot of people are tuning into and, and whatnot. There's a kind of implicit trust, I think, that Australians have towards the higher authorities. And if they see that start to crumble, if they start to see cracks in their reasoning, then that kind of shatters them at their core as kind of a part of their national identity that they're seeing as kind of drifting away. And I think that is something that maybe not people are talking about, but that is really concerning. And as that, I think that is kind of driving a lot of people's anxieties um, or, you know, driving them to attend things like the rally last week. And I think and, something that Paul said, Father Paul said earlier um, bounces off what you just said in that we have trusted the government to do so much in this country. A lot of stuff that in other countries is done privately, like the charitable works, the, the welfare situations, the kinds of things that would normally be dealt with in other countries by private institutions or private responses, and often the church. In Australia has been very much a province of the government. And so when if the government is wrong about this, it's not just about this issue. It, it goes to almost everything we trust them to do. And our response in the past has been, as soon as someone shows some cracks in their ability, we just throw them out. They vote the next guy in. Yes, <laughs> and, and to add to uh, the good points that you're both making, um, we our generation doesn't have an experience of hardship in quite the way that uh, we're experiencing now. This is, this is, if you like, our, our World War II type experience. I mean, that, that's a, a very pale comparison. It's not just, but it's as close as we can get to something that requires the whole nation to band together and uh, do something actually good for one another. It's not so far away a uh, comparison as you might think, Father. Um, the Spanish flu, which came home after the war, World War I, I think it was, mm. maybe I'm wrong about that, no, that's actually right. killed more people than the war. Perhaps we could come back to um, a, an appropriate response to uh, complaints. There are there are mm. actual processes in place in governments. We first have recourse to our local members. We have recourse to the the normal authorities. Uh, we can ask clarification of certain things because quite often when protests happen, it's it's sometimes at least partially a result of a misunderstanding of what's been said and the messaging hasn't been great. Often when enough people uh, ask for clarification or ask for some sort of um, leniency, the government pays attention because they they get voted in or out on a, a basis. And if we get enough people to say, hey, pay attention to us, we've got a problem, then they will respond uh, in some way. Not always in the way we like, but they will have to. When we've exhausted that possibility and pe perhaps even some more uh, active campaigns which don't involve breaking the law, like letter writing and 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 more aggressive kind of protests like that, then you might have a place. Like John Paul II was very much in favour of the solidarity movement, for example, in communist countries where they were oppressing people. Now, the, those countries weren't, what they were protesting was the restriction of movement and association. And technically speaking, you could say that was still within the natural law, but mm -hmm. John Paul II supported the protests on the basis that it dehumanised the people to be so regulated in their life and disallowed from association. And uh, 
I think you could make similar arguments about some of the conditions of lockdown, that, that it has dehumanised us to an extent. We've been kind of atomized we've been isolated in in various ways i'm not advocating the protest by the way i think it's mm-hmm. a silly way and it doesn't actually achieve anything in my opinion but i'm absolutely sympathetic to the the reasons behind it and the the frustrations behind it that's a good distinction to make isn't it between uh, being sympathetic to the frustrations which are common to everyone i don't think there'd be a, a single person who would love every aspect of the lockdown yeah. Uh, and the the distinction between the method of protest and the reasons or the, the frustration driving the protest. Right. But, it, it, but it, a cool head is required, I think, to uh, articulate clearly the foundational justification for a demonstration or resistance, shall we say, more broadly speaking. That, that has to be quite clear. And, and whether, in fact, the thing which is being resisted here is evil or is... Uh, jeopardising such a good as to require that response. So uh, you mentioned appropriate response. I'd say proportionate response. Is it proportionate to the evil which is being perpetrated? Very good, very good. Is it proportionate to the good which is being foregone? So one of my problems with the protest is that it wasn't just a a civil disobedience of an uh, inconsequential order. There are reasons for the 1.5 metre rule, for example. There are reasons for mask wearing which are about serious concern for some people's health. And I I think that a protest could have been uh, conducted by people who demonstrated that they respected those risks while still uh, protesting against the movement requirements in, in the law. Um, and, and I think there was a missed opportunity there because it, it allowed them to be dismissed as loons who don't seem to care about uh, the risks of transmission of, of the, the virus. Um, it, one of the key things about any kind of public attempt to make a point is that you're always going to be interpreted by other people. Yes. <laughs> and if you give them a chance to misinterpret you, you've basically wasted the opportunity. Yes, and I think there were um, there were examples of demonstrations like that um, in Victoria, I think, last year. And I think because they were done well, they didn't get so much an airtime as the ones that you know the ones that get a little bit uh, feisty. Um, mm. But yeah, look, I mean, law is intrinsically a good thing, you know, and we entrust our leaders with you know, this power to, to rule and to govern according to how, you know, hopefully according to um, the right leanings of the of their conscience and interior mm. state. Um, how much of that, Beth, though, I mean, uh, sorry to interrupt, but the there is an issue with the way the law is policed. So, for example, you might say um, it's absolutely moral that we treat each other with respect and that it's absolutely moral that we don't hurt anyone. But if the police got into the practice of kicking my door down and coming in with guns drawn to make sure that I'm not in the process of, you know, hurting my wife, if they did this regularly, we would say, doesn't matter what your cause is, the method here has dehumanised us. It's invaded too many other goods. It's, it's, yes. it's infringed upon too many other goods. I still think there's something to be said about the way in which it go about it. So, for instance, some of the more recent additions to police powers have have made me a little bit nervous. Yes, not no, that yes, I'm definitely. I totally see why they're asking for them because people aren't complying and they're looking for ways to try and help people comply. But 
but I can't, I'm concerned about the way they could be misused and whether there's an accountability of the police in that respect. I think there needs to be checks and balances in every area, particularly with, with you know, I mean, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which is why the word accountability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. And that must be checks and balances in the force and in the military to make sure that, you know, theirs is not an excess of power. Uh, you know, gets to the head, it can end very badly. Mm. Um, and the the same, you know, there must be the same amount of sort of checks and balances in in the government and in what they're legislating. Um, yeah. I actually don't. It doesn't feel like any of the restrictions have factored in the existence of human nature. Right. It's almost as though. Can you expand like, on that a little bit more? Sure. How would- <laughs> And I'm saying this as someone who doesn't have to go around making rules and laws and right. thank yep. God for that. But uh, it, it's almost as though uh, our dear government has forgotten that human interaction is something that is absolutely necessary for, for flourishing. It's not right. like you can just put a stop to, you know, the the wants of the soul for any amount of time. It just doesn't work like that. Or basic um, human you goods can, like, like friendship and, and exactly. touch and things like that. Sure, of, we may uh, be rational animals, but we're still rational. <laughs> well, it's interesting that the government came out and gave they keep giving money away as if this is going to solve everything. Yes. Now, I'm very, very happy that we live in a country where it's, we, we have enough affluence that that's possible, that people can be helped in desperate situations. and It means we can do things like lockdown and not starve, but... They're not addressing. And the other thing is that we're noticing that no matter how many counsellors or psychologists we throw at the problem, human goods are served by other humans. Yes. Correct. And, and you can't, you can't psychologise this problem away. It, it, you have to actually fix it by restoring our human connections. And, and yes. nor can we, make, can we fix it especially by requiring the government to take action on it. I mean, we, we're talking about human acts which re- require a degree of personal responsibility, personal initiative. So it's interesting the government has provided a few suggestions for different things. Uh, you can, um, when you get together, don't shake hands, you can bump elbows, which is just ridiculous, but it, people do it. Um, Honestly, don't you get a little bit nervous about government giving us advice about social interaction? I mean, seriously, do your job and let us be inventive and creative in all the ways that we need to be in terms of being human. Don't, for God's sake, I literally mean for God's sake, government, don't teach us how to be human. I mean, you you do your thing and we will be humans. Yeah, it'd be great if government was inhabited by humans, first of all. That would be an important precondition for polite society. But I was very pleased to see that the government has allowed us to meet with singles, our singles meeting singles. That that shows a degree of comprehension of uh, the human situation and interaction. Um, I suppose they're in a tricky situation, not all being Catholic, not having that great blessing of uh, our, our wonderful understanding of the human person. Uh, they, they've just got a job to do and they have all of the, the joy that comes with uh, <laughs> no Catholic anthropology but this tremendous job. I, I, I mean, this is another episode, but I think that we've got more people than we realised who live close to the edge economically yeah. in Sydney mm-hmm. and I think this has exposed the cracks in our so-called thriving economy that, that, that the rich people are coasting okay and I, I'm probably included, I'm not rich, but I'm, I have a job that allows me to coast. 
uh, not happily, but to to get by at least and pay the bills. But there are too many people in Sydney who aren't doing that well, and it's exposing things we'd rather not admit about ourselves. I think that's uncomfortable. Yes, and and the high cost of uh, of social isolation it, that's going yeah. to take a long time to undo. Yep. I don't think I quite share your enthusiasm, Father, with the uh, the singles bubble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's uh, I, I believe. I believe that the restrictions around singles bubbles uh, states that you may catch up with one person and that one person only for the duration of lockdown. Which so, means uh, that they, they are also your person. Which you, mean, yes, you're each other's person, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine the amount of friendships that are going to go awry uh, mm-hmm. coming up from this with, you know, you having to choose one person that you preference more than anyone else. That's, that's not going to be pretty for a lot of yeah. people, but... Mm. Oh, it'd be no problem for introverts. We we have the problem sorted. <laughs> the problem our, our best is selecting one. <laughs> selecting one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Some of us are hard pressed to find one. No, that's not true. That's not true at all. I think the highest compliment I've um, heard paid between a husband and wife was when uh, my wife said to me, she couldn't think of anyone better to be locked in with. So, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, that's probably a place to to end the podcast. We obviously haven't solved any problems, but it's good to actually talk these things through with a mind to uh, an understanding of the goods according to our faith, but also to even those people who might disagree with us, that we respect the reasons underpinning and try and urge them towards a, a more healthy expression of those things. Please, God, the whole situation is resolved uh, and we all get back into uh, being social and elbow bumping good grief um <laughs> in some way in the future <laughs> that's definitely going to happen next time we meet father um you can subscribe mm. to the podcast at thiscatholiclive.com.au tell us what you liked or didn't like or some other solutions better than elbow bumping <laughs> hit us up on instagram twitter facebook discord all of those things we'll be back next week but that's all for now thank you for listening to this catholic life